0: Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We continue with part two of Stories Make the World with Stephen Most. He's a playwright, documentary filmmaker, and author of the book Stories Make the World, Reflections of Storytelling and the Art of the Documentary. Most presents vignettes of his mentors and experiences and employs his personal art of storytelling to share who these people are and what he has learned in his 54 years as a writer and storyteller. In part one, Most discusses his experiences with Peruvian shaman and curanderos when he was a young man living along the north coast of Peru. He also describes the art of documentary filmmaking. Here, in part two, Most tells the story of biologist and conservationist Aldo Leopold, among others. And he describes the art of listening as well. I do encourage you to listen to part one of this series on our website, radiocurious.org. When Steve Most visited the Radio Curious studios on August 4th, 2017, we began part two with his further discussion of the art of storytelling.
1: One of the things that became clear to me in writing Stories Make the World is that we are all storytellers. Stories play an important role in our inner lives. They have to do with our own self-understanding and the way that we present ourselves to others. And for someone who tells stories for documentary films and is a playwright, I understood that my work is in a much larger context. Storytelling is a fundamental human experience. The ideas that I employ in making a documentary film go back to ancient Greece, to, to theater, but also to Homer. But not only that, Storytelling is so fundamental that we can we can trace it to the people who created the caves in southern France more than 30,000 years ago in Lascaux and Chauvet, who made those incredible paintings on the cave walls uh, using uh, a kind of candle fire, and there must have been people gathered in those caves with, with fire flickering on the cave walls, hearing stories. And... Uh, experiencing ceremonies that made those paintings come to life in their experience. So what I'm doing as a documentary filmmaker is creating an experience for an audience, an audience that uh, goes beyond the people I will ever know. It has to be a story that can be recognized as valid by people of many different backgrounds, many different points of view and political understandings of the world and forms of knowledge. And that's a challenge, to take a subject that uh, may be entirely new to me, explore it and put it into a form so that it will make
0: sense to a wide variety of people. I want to hear about the stories that challenged you and you put them into the documentary. I'd like to begin there the people who gave you a focus uh, and how it puts you on the road to where you are uh, 50, 53, 54 years later.
1: Happy to do that, yes. I've been very fortunate to have known some extraordinary and, and inspiring people. And the book gives me an opportunity to share what I know about them with, uh,
0: with readers. So tell us about them and what you learned from them. Well, uh, of course, the, the book serves that purpose
1: in a much more extensive way than I can ad lib in this interview, but I'll say a few things about uh, four people uh, that I write about. There's actually a, a fifth, Janetta Sagan, who was an international human rights uh, organizer for Amnesty International, and she too was an inspiring person, but someone I met uh, later in life as an adult. But one of the great influences uh, that I discovered through documentary storytelling was is Aldo Leopold, who was a a great conservationist. He founded a number of sciences. He created the first uh, wilderness uh, area, uh, the the Gila Wilderness. He was a wise man and a great writer, and I was really privileged to to get to know his family and his. Biographers and I learned so much about ecology by knowing Aldo Leopold. I also had the opportunity to uh, make some films with a forest ecologist, Malcolm North, who uh, created uh, had a a ten year study of a Sierra forest. Uh, It's ecology is a very complex subject, and a lot of it we can't experience. So much of a forest is beneath the ground. Uh, The relationships between so many different kinds of species are beyond what our minds can absorb. So just having a concept of the complexity of life through what I've been able to learn about ecology through making films has been a great uh, guidance for me, not only as a filmmaker, but also in getting an understanding of, of
0: the world we're living in. Can you explain for our listeners, uh, using the Gila Wilderness as an example? Uh, one, obviously, where it is, but also how you employed your art of the documentary to tell the story.
1: Well, the 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 story of the of the, the Gila Wilderness is a good lesson in ecology that Aldo Leopold himself learned. He was a hunter. He wanted areas where people could go without any roads, where one could go hunting. Um, But he was also of the opinion that one should kill the predators of the deer that he wanted to hunt. Uh, (laughs) So he was in part responsible for the death of of the wolves and the bears that were in the mountains of uh, Arizona and New Mexico. What happened was an explosion of the population of deer, such that they destroyed the vegetation that they depended on. Aldo Leopold came to understand that one has to think like a mountain, that the mountain knows all of the species that live, with, live upon it, and that the predators, as well as the prey that human beings might enjoy as game, and the vegetation that they subsist on, and the soil— All of these things have to be taken into account. So the metaphor of thinking like a mountain was something that we wanted to get across in the documentary about Aldo Leopold, but we had quite a challenge in making that film. I'm referring to director Steve Dunsky, editor Ann Dunsky, uh, myself as as the writer. Uh, The Aldo Leopold Foundation was the executive producer of this. Uh, Our challenge was that Aldo Leopold died in 1948, there was almost no film of him. His radio voice, he had done radio programs, all of those programs disappeared and unmarked spools. How would we represent him? How would we connect his life story with the many works of bringing back endangered species and doing uh, agriculture with a conservation perspective? How would we connect his life with his work? And, fortunately one of his biographers is a conservation biologist so he could give us transitions between leopold's life story and and people who whom he inspired and who are carrying out the sciences that he founded but also fortunately aldo leopold was a great writer so we had the actor peter coyote be aldo leopold uh speaking as Aldo Leopold in the film and saying things that are as true today as they were when Aldo Leopold lived. That was a problem that we had that I thought was successfully solved, making green fire Aldo Leopold and a land ethic for our time.
0: So I'm curious, Steve Most, uh, was there an intentional metaphor about the explosion of the population of deer that uh, destroyed the vegetation they depended on uh, to comparing it to the explosion of our species that has resulted in global warming and the current catastrophe that uh, confronts us?
1: It's a good comparison between the the deer who uh, whose population exploded when their predators were killed, thereby overrunning the sources of, of food that they depended on. And what we're doing as human beings as our population expands and we overrun the, uh, the, the water that we depend on, the land that other species need, especially wild species, when we pollute the air. Uh, This is something that we tend not to be aware of. Our minds are very much tuned into to language, to communications that have to do with human experience. And it's hard for us to be aware of what lies beyond our immediate social and personal experience as human beings. One of the uh, films that I was proud to make is about nature sound recording, because it's by listening. It's by listening to the life around us, the, the birds and, and other animals around us. And this is in cities as well as in, uh, rural and, 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 and wild settings that we can hear, uh, other species. It's when we're out hiking or, or camping to see a bear, to see a coyote, to see a hawk. Uh, those are extraordinary things that we pay close attention to, but, By listening, uh, we can feel the life around us in a way that we tend not to do if we're completely tuned into what's on our screens and what other people are saying to us and what we want to say to them. We uh, human beings tend not to have a, a large context about our impact on the Earth and the other species among whom we live, and about the life support systems, the, the air, the water that we depend on. We tend to forget that uh, plants are breathing oxygen for us, and we are uh, harvesting species in the sea and on the land for our food consumption beyond sustainability as our population increases. So it's important to give people a larger context to understand the consequences of choices that we make about our uh, energy use, our vehicle choices, um, and and the number of children that we have. This is something that is uh, the subject of many, many documentaries. It's a good way that people can inform themselves about their lives
0: and our world in a larger context. Steve Most, I want to ask you about um, the process of learning to listen to things that we are not able to necessarily comprehend when we hear them. But uh, I do want to say before you answer, uh, we're visiting with Stephen Most, the author of Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of Documentary. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Steve, learning to listen as you mentioned in uh, the nature sound recordings. Can you uh, describe ways that people can learn to listen and interpret the sounds that they don't otherwise comprehend?
1: Well, listening is probably the most important thing that one can do in making documentaries. And that ranges from listening to the the ambience, the, the sounds around one, as one is recording a documentary, it has to do with listening to nature sounds, but also uh, the sounds of our world, which often we might tune out. They might be noise. Uh, soundscape ecologist Bernie Krauss, about whom I made a documentary, Nature's Orchestra, has a way of categorizing sounds. There's the geophony, the sounds of a place, like like the wind and the waters, the cracking ice, the biophony, the sounds of the animals of that place, and then the anthropophony, which are the human sounds and noise. And uh, so many people are tuned into the anthropophony rather than the biophony and not listening to the place and its particular ambience where they live. Now, listening is probably the most important thing one does in making a documentary because one encounters people people who are strangers, people who know things you don't know. Um, And one has to really listen to learn from them and also to know the questions that one can ask to bring out what they have to offer. What they have to offer may go beyond what you had in mind in starting out to make the documentary in the first place. And you have to judge what they're saying to see whether they're... uh, telling you something that isn't true, or telling you something that's really wise or well-informed that you hadn't thought of that you really have to incorporate into your film. And this is why it's important to have a high degree of impartiality in making a documentary because you're going to learn something. That's a lot of the motivation for making a documentary. And unless you learn something, you can't present
0: something that will enlarge the experience
1: of your audience
0: and as you point out in uh, your uh, beginning section on Hannah Arendt uh, the most important thing to her she told an in interview is to understand listening is foundational to understanding exactly right yes so the other sections of your book that that really bring the the story together and uh, for me you and i having been friends for many, many years uh, brings together insight into you uh, and the work that that you have done and the stories that you've shared with me at other times about that in the natural world, uh, the human world, and the Anthropocene. Um, Share some of those stories with us before we close. Well, I've learned a tremendous amount
1: making documentaries, and it's been quite a privilege to meet all the people that I've met. And, and to learn from them, asking the best questions I can think of. Uh, what's on my mind right now has to do with the documentary that I'm making that is not yet completed. Uh, and it's kind of extraordinary that there is no such documentary. I'd love it if somebody else were to do it, because it's a lot of work uh, making a documentary with very little reward. But this is a film about wildfires and climate change, and that's a rather important uh, connection that our forests are uh, absorb carbon, but they're also vulnerable both to climate change, which makes them hotter and drier, and more vulnerable to fire, uh, but also forestry practices that have suppressed uh, fires, which have made forests in the United States anyway, much uh, more crowded. And so you have dying forests that under hot conditions with weird weather, powerful winds, are suddenly vulnerable to a new kind of fire, the megafire. And these fires destroy entire forests, which means that instead of absorbing carbon, carbon goes up into the atmosphere. And to give you an idea of that, California has gone through great efforts to reduce the carbon footprint through alternative vehicles and all sorts of measures One megafire like the Rim Fire in 2013 will release the equivalent of 1.2 billion gallons of gas, overriding the savings that the state has been making. So one really has to uh, change our practices in forestry and also grow sustainable forests to absorb carbon rather than release a tremendous amount of carbon into the atmosphere. So That's a film that I'm really committed to making right now. It's difficult to make a documentary film, to raise funds and so on. But I've been very fortunate with director Kevin White, who's my partner of this project, to meet uh, forest managers, uh, extraordinary people, uh, forest ecologists, uh, the head of CAL FIRE, the head of uh, California's Air Resources Board, who have really educated uh, me
0: and I hope, through this work to educate the public. When you say changing the forest practices, what do you have in mind? Human beings evolved with fire. Hominids
1: used fire before there were human beings. And I think it's because of fire, because of the food sources that fire made available, because of the protection it gave us from predators, because of our ability to cook, that we have brains that can process symbols. And so we can tell stories, often around fires. So I'm looking at climate change in the context of humanity's experience with fire. And of course, a major uh, changing point in that experience was the Industrial Revolution, when we started uh, consuming fossil fuels and pumping great amounts of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. This is the challenge that we're facing now. And I think it's useful to think about it in terms of humanity's long experience with fire. When uh, people came from other continents to North America. Uh, a lot of wood was needed to build cities, uh, railroad ties. Wood in the 19th century was what oil became in the 20th century. It was a major commodity, and so forests had to be protected. And, of course, people understood that they stored water as well. And so the Forest Service, which uh, owns a lot of the public forested land, uh, for a century has been suppressing fire. Which and one of the purposes of that was to protect the wood
0: that then could be harvested. But now, are you saying let the fires burn? Before the industrialization
1: of forests, that's what happened. People were burning forests regularly, and in fact, the forests of North America uh, evolved with fire. The forests that we enjoy in the Sierra evolved with fire. You can see that the giant sequoias had fires that allowed their seeds to be released. Uh, a lot of the animals that live in the forest require open forest. And so there was a uh, an ecological understanding of Native people that if they didn't burn the forest, the forest would not thrive and they would not thrive. What's really interesting is that uh, tribal people, including the yurok's in Northern California, have been bringing back what they call cultural fire. And I think that Our long human heritage of using fire uh, is something that we need to bring back into our forests for the sake of the health of the forests, and also as a way of growing sustainable forests that will absorb carbon rather than release it in great amounts into the atmosphere.
0: Well, Stephen Most, author of Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling, and the Art of Documentary. I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have some questions about you. Um, And the first one is, if you were to suggest ways that that our listeners could become storytellers, what would you tell them?
1: So many of us are attached to our screens. We're looking at our screens when we walk, when we eat. Uh, often people don't have conversations. They sit around a table with screens in front of them, these little screens, these ubiquitous computers. And, and I think that uh, it's important for people to share their stories with each other, whether they're family members or strangers. In fact, so many people we tend to assume we know because of their background or where we meet them. But if we were to hear their stories, we'd find that each one of us is unique, each one of us has an interesting story to tell, and that we can really enlarge the world we live
0: in by sharing our
1: stories and hearing the stories of
0: others. And the questions that I ask everybody at this point, uh, I'd like to ask you, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life or the direction of your life, perhaps your fundamental thinking? Well, one aha moment
1: occurred uh, when I was having one of my plays produced by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. I admired the San Francisco Mime Troupe. I'd always wanted to write a play for them. I had that opportunity in the summer of 1985 But the very week that the play went into production, my daughter was born, my first child. And it was a difficult labor, three days of labor, ended with a C-section. My wife was sick. The baby was sick. All of a sudden, having that play in production didn't matter so much. It made me understand that uh, the health of my daughter, the health of my wife, the future of my family mattered so much more than a play that people would watch. Uh, however it it uh, inspired me, however good it might turn out to be for the audience. That was definitely an aha moment. It changed my values. Of course, no one can anticipate how one's life will change in
0: becoming a parent. What would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, I'm I'm 74
1: and I hope to live a couple more decades uh, in in health. I want to keep working because I enjoy the work I do and I feel it's valuable. My last book, Before Stories Make the World, was River of Renewal about the Klamath Basin. And I've come to realize working on my My current film, Wilder Than Wild, that there's an important form of renewal occurring in the Klamath Basin, namely cultural fire, that the tribes are reintroducing fire to the landscape for a lot of reasons. I'd like to make a film about that. Also, it looks like the four hydroelectric dams on the Klamath River are going to come down in 2020. That's a subject for a film. It's going to be the most significant dam removal in the history of North America. So my publishers already agreed to uh, have me write two new chapters and put out a new edition, perhaps in 2021. And I'd like to do those uh, those two films. Beyond that, I'd like to be a grandparent. No pressure on my children, but I think that's a form of enjoyment that I might have in the years
0: to come. And finally, Steve Most, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? One book that I've reread
1: recently uh, is The Human Condition by, by Hannah Arendt. I think her thinking uh, has a lot of value for our time. Uh, I'm going to be rereading On Revolution because we really need to think about the foundations of our democracy in a new way at this moment in history. So I would, I would recommend that people read Hannah Arendt. I've also been reading about... Uh, Andalusia, the the civilization in in southern Spain that was a Jewish and Arab and Christian civilization. Uh, It it was in southern Spain that the uh, classics of ancient Greece and Rome, which had been translated into Arabic, entered Europe, which made European civilization possible as we know it. Also, the classics of mathematics and astronomy of Arabic civilization— uh, became accessible to us through that civilization in and- Andalusia in southern Spain that ended in 1492 when the Jews were expelled and when uh, the end of Islamic Spain occurred as well. i read a wonderful book by Stephen Nightingale called Granada, which tells that story, and I can recommend it. It's a beautiful book. He's a poet and a novelist and short story writer. This is his one nonfiction book. Uh, I would recommend that we look at a time when different civilizations, different religions came together to create uh, a, a cultural and intellectual wealth that is comparable to the best that
0: civilization has known. Steve Most, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry Vogel. It's my pleasure. Our guest is Stephen Most, author of Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of the Documentary. His website is stephenmost.com. The books that Steve Most recommends are Human Condition and On Revolution by Hannah Arendt and Granada by Stephen Nightingale. This program was recorded on August 4th, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Thomas Schoolcraft is our intern. Christina Anastad is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.